It's my privilege to be able to be up here to herald the word today. And listening to what's been going on today, I realize that is just because of our Lord. And I have a couple things to say before I start. It's not announcements, but I just decided I, I needed to say these first. I originally was going to preach on um, believer's rest, but I read this about a month ago, and I was very overcome by what I read. And I think it'll have great value for all of us. I also want to say, because some people talked to me this morning, I have been diagnosed with cancer. It's not that big a deal. I want people to realize that. Um, we are submitted to the Lord, and it's there, and it's real early, and my doctor's convinced at the end of this month he'll deal with it, and it'll be one and done. We'll see if that's true or not. But regardless, I don't want you to get the impression that we're falling apart or anything like that. Our life has not changed. Like somebody said to me this morning when I walked in, you don't look any different. Exactly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that's not meant to be mood setting. It's just the way it is. So I wanted to get that out of the way. Let's pray, please. Um, God, thank you so much. Thank you for this chance to come forward. But more than that, Father, I pray that you'll move in me. Father, help me to herald your word correctly. We all thank you for your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit will move in me to not only say it, say it in a way that's understandable. Father, help us to all fully grasp the message of what you're preparing to speak about. God, we give this time to you and we praise you. Help us to glorify you through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're turning your Bibles to Matthew 20, 1 through 16, I'll give you a moment for that. As you're turning, uh, we're going to be speaking about the kingdom of God today. Uh, the kingdom of God is mentioned 46 times in the ESV New Testament. John the Baptist uses it once. Jesus Christ speaks about it 45 times. It's used in eight different parables. We'll be looking at a parable today. It's very clear that Jesus Christ wants us to understand the kingdom of God. And that's part of what we're going to be looking at. It's necessary, unfortunately, to read all of the things about the kingdom of God to fully grasp all of it. We'll be looking at kingdom equality today, which is a significant aspect of the kingdom of heaven, okay? Um, this parable, before we get started is set in the Jewish time period of the harvest. It's a time when people, day laborers, if you will, would gather in local towns in the marketplace in hopes to get work. And landowners who raised vineyards had a need to get extra laborers to help them get their work done. Uh, those doing the hiring would go out into these towns before dawn to hire people to come and work for them. The workday started at 6 o'clock in the morning. And because of the parable we're going to go into, we'll remember that they worked until 6 p.m. And depending upon what time of the day it was, we would add the hour to the day to understand what it was. So in the third hour, that would make it 9 a.m. At the 12th hour, 
would make it 6 p.m. And you can use that throughout all of the Bible when you're seeing that. If you're ever wondering Jesus on the cross in the third hour, that would be 9 a.m., that kind of thing. That's just helpful to know before we get started, okay? Another point to know before we start is a denarius. A denarius is a sum of money. It was a very fair wage for a day's work. Just remember that. It doesn't matter how much it is in today's world. It's a fair amount of pay. Um, we're going to start back up one verse, chapter 19, verse 30, where Jesus says to start this, but many are first, I'm sorry, many who are first will be last. As we read the text, we've got to realize that Jesus uses this parable to teach his disciples about the kingdom of heaven. And again, he starts with Matthew 19.30, where we just read, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now let's read today's text. Matthew 21-16 through 16 says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them out into the vineyard. And going about, out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give to you. So they went, going out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour. Um, sorry, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out again and found others standing. And he said to them, why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, then you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each one of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they should receive more, but each one of them received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, the last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? What, take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Well, as I noted before we started, Jesus is using a very common harvest practice to teach his disciples about the kingdom of heaven. More than anything, I think we need to cling to an overarching point or principle for today as we go through this. Salvation is a free gift of divine mercy, completely devoid of any personal merit. Think about that as we go through this. Matthew seems to have written this to pass on what Jesus has said about kingdom equality. And that's what we're going to explore. 
And Jesus presented what he had to say by a fairly simple outline for those that like to take that. Um, first, in verses 1 through 8, we'll look at what it means to be called to kingdom equality. Then in verses 9 through 12, we'll see objections to kingdom equality, which always seem to come. And finally, in verses 13 through 16, we see vindication of kingdom equality. Well, as we begin the parable, we have to note again, it's bracketed by the statement, many who are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. It appears that this is a common proverb that Jesus has used quite a bit, and authors who study regularly are convinced this is not this doesn't appear in other biblical literature. It's it's not found out there, and Jesus is using this to illustrate his intended application of it. He states clearly that the theme is the kingdom of heaven. There's no doubt to the disciples there. That's a subject he's been dealing with since earlier in chapter 19 when the rich young ruler came to him and asked how he could achieve eternal life. He wanted that. And all the Jews knew that eternal life equated to citizenship in heaven. It's what they wanted, what they desired, but they didn't know how to get there. Now, unfortunately, this young man wasn't ready. Um, so Jesus had told him he needed to give up his riches in order to gain the kingdom of heaven. He was unable to do that. But as he taught his disciples, he also let them know, he was telling them that no riches or human merit was good enough to get you into heaven. The only way you could get there, the only possibility of entering would be by God's graciousness. And that was where we were sitting. And one more important thing to think about before we actually walk through the parable. How do you answer the question this morning, is God fair? Because that's an interesting question. Does he really have our best interest in mind? And some wonder about that. How can he allow the evil that's in the world? And if sin is so bad, why doesn't he just get rid of it? Why doesn't he do away with the coronavirus? Hmm. Well, we'll consider these thoughts, or at least kind of keep thoughts, thoughts as we walk through this, uh, this parable, um, which many call the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, just so we have something to, to grab onto. Well, as I said, verses 1 through 8 talk about the calling, okay? We are called to kingdom equality. Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. This is a picture of God in the spiritual arena. It's something we got to remember. Um, he reigns sovereignly through his righteousness and his grace. Okay? Uh, the parable specifically shows that equal and just basis for entry to the kingdom. God's kingdom. The kingdom of heaven which happens through God's grace. No other way. Jesus is using a common story with an earthly setting to illustrate this spiritual truth. It's real simple about that part. So the landowner's estate included a very large vineyard. And in that, 
he needed to hire laborers. Now, we're not told exactly in this parable what the time was and what was needed, but more than likely, it was harvest time. And in harvest time, a wealthy landowner with a large vineyard would need a lot of laborers to help him to pick the grapes and bring them in in time. In time for what? The rains are coming. The rains come, the grapes rot. He needed help to get this done. And wealthy and other types of uh, estate owners didn't have enough servants on hand, if you will, to get that kind of job done. They needed to hire other people. Therefore, there was a whole group of people that had grown up in the area that we called them day laborers, okay? Uh, they would be uh, temporary workers who, again, gathered at the marketplace or near the marketplace during the harvest season, knowing that the owners would come out to hire them. And they were hoping to get something from it, okay? Um, these men were generally at the lower end of the socioeconomic scale, unskilled, untrained, and unemployed, except for when they were hired to come and work. And that was the nature of their life. They barely lived above the beggars, but they were able to go out and actually work. These are things to understand as we walk through this. Now, we also need to remember one more little piece about this, and that is God is no respecter of his own. What, what's that? He treats everybody equally. Nobody is more special than anybody else. No matter where you see yourself, all believers are all the same. So the kingdom of heaven, remember, is Jesus is describing the spiritual sphere of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is where all the children of God exist. And that's a real important thing to remember because the realm of heaven is where God rules over the redeemed. It's where he rules through grace and salvation. So in the parable, Jesus is telling us how it is among the saved, among the redeemed, among God's people in his kingdom, okay? It's like a landowner who went out early to hire laborers for his vineyard, and he needed a lot of laborers to get the job done, which is our setting. The landowner goes out and chooses, or hires, however you want to call it, laborers to come and work for him, just as God calls or chooses people for salvation. Now, again, a Jewish workday started at 6 in the morning, went to 6 at night, they worked 12 hours. They did that six days a week. I'm sure everyone here would be very excited about that, okay? Um, so to start of a long workday, before the workday began, the owner goes out to hire the extra laborers. So you begin to see how long these days get, right? Um, we have enough. He just doesn't have enough, that is, in his workforce to get the job done. So he is looking for as many as he can get. And he goes out to hire from the lowest class of workers, men who are willing to take almost anything. They need work. They're waiting, and they want to work. Now, I don't know if you all know this story, but it's like the Job family in John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath. Some of you may know that. These were migrant tenant farmers in Oklahoma. 
And due to the depression, they lost their place to work. They wound up traveling across America, trying to find day work. Say, what's the use of this story here? This is a reminder, this kind of people exist today. Lots of them. So this is no um, parable that cannot talk to us today. Even though it was given for the disciples specifically, it's very applicable. It's where I'm trying to get to, okay? Um, unlike day laborers, something to think about is we look at them, we, we compared them to the beggars, slaves and servants had a much better life than day laborers. They, had, they may have been poor, but they were taken care of. And they may have done even a little bit better depending upon the benefits of whatever family they were with. So we've got it set here to realize that day laborers struggled and lived at a very bare subsistence level and they had to provide their own place to stay. So it's kind of bleak if you think about it. God was also very much aware that there would be people at this level of the social strata that they would be poor and they would have needs. So he provided for them through the Old Testament. It says in Leviticus 19.13, the wages of the hired servant shall not remain with you all night until morning. In other words, the guy who works for you as a day laborer has to be paid right away. This is how he gets food for his family. He needs his pay. He goes on, in fact, to say in Deuteronomy 24.15, you shall give him his hire on the day he earns it before the sun goes down. For he's poor and sets his heart on it. Lest he cry against you to the Lord and it be sin in you. So it was sin or iniquity not to pay a man what he had worked and earned at the end of the day. No matter how things went. So the parable is quite realistic. And with this setting and all the things we've kind of looked at here, this sets us up for how the parable lays out. So again, the estate owner goes out first thing in the morning, even before six, before dawn, to hire people from the marketplace where they would congregate in hopes to get hired. And the verse two says then, he had gone to a nearby town and when he had agreed with the laborers for denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. Now it doesn't say this, but I'm guessing he picked everybody that was there and they all got a denarius, and they're pretty excited and motivated about it. In fact, a denarius is not a standard day's wage for someone who is unskilled or untrained. It was actually a very good wage, a very generous wage, and that's something we gotta remember. It was a wage that was paid for skilled labor. It was what was paid to a Roman soldier for a day's work. It was accepted as very fair, not low. And this, this is important to fully grasp before we go forward. With a wage like this, who wouldn't go work for this guy? That's the other piece of it. Of course they all went to work for him. So I'm pretty positive that the marketplace in this little town had nobody left behind. He hired them all, and they all went to work in his garden. And that was at six o'clock, and these guys are motivated. Then we go to verse 3, where it says, He went out about the third hour, that's 9 o'clock, and there were others standing idle in the marketplace. 
but he'd already hired everybody, right? It, so he realizes, he realizes it's gonna take more people to get the job done. They've been working three hours and they're not getting through the vineyard fast enough. So he goes and he sees men and they're standing idle and they'd been there. They had not actually been there at six. Maybe they came late. Maybe they were in another town and they heard about this really generous landowner who's paying a denarius to guys to come and pick grapes. So now they're there and he says, well, let's go. And he takes them out and they're not gonna turn down the possibility of the potential for a decent job with decent pay. Apparently the word may have circulated to the other towns and they realize there's hope. So they've come here and they'll take whatever a generous man might be willing to give. That's kind of important. Soon it's noon, half the day is gone. He's looking at his field. He knows what needs to be done. He still needs more workers. So the landowner goes back out into the field or into the town. Verse six, five says, again he went out about the sixth hour, about noon and the ninth hour, three in the afternoon, and he repeats the process. And these people are very glad. It's late in the day. The day is passing them by. And now they've still got a chance to earn something. And that's, again, significant. We carry that thought. Then even more so, look at verse 6. He went out the 11th hour. It's 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, I don't know how much an hour will do, but he went and he found some guys there and he asked them, why are you still here? And they said, because nobody hired us. So I'm, they could easily have come in, but he goes ahead and hires them. He said to them, you too go into the vineyard. He is a very gracious man. That's the thought we've got to keep. When he finds the reason they're there is simply that no one wanted them, and no one had hired them, he hires them and takes them into his vineyard. They may have waited all day or possibly been somewhere else, but they needed help too. So he says, just go, and whatever's right, I will give to you. Well, they'll take anything, so they go. He's hired everybody he can possibly hire to pick for the day, and we come to verse 8. This is a significant shift in what's going on in the parable. When evening had come, now it's six, it's an hour later, the landowner said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages. Now think about it for just a minute. He's a very generous man. He's following the Old Testament guidance of Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 24. He's making sure he pays these people right away for their work. He appreciates what they've done and he's living up to everything he's supposed to do. He's made promises to some. And he calls his steward and tells him to get them in line. Now the steward is of course the foreman. He's been monitoring their work all day and it's his job to pay these workers. So he has them line up and the master has told him they line them in accordance with Mosaic law and pay them first to last, okay? Um, line them up with the ones who worked an hour and then go through the whole day. Well, everything seems pretty fair to this point. 
I think as you're listening to this, you're going, yeah, this is really fair. He's made promises, he's taken care of them. And here we are. We look now at verses nine through 12. And this would be where we see objections to kingdom equality. It seems there's always objections to kingdom equality. You'll grasp that in a minute if you don't have it yet, okay? Well, so the first go to the end of the line. The guys who came last come to the front of the line and the foreman is ready to pay everybody. And take a look at verse nine. When those hired about the 11th hour came, each one received a denarius. Now, I know I said earlier that a denarius was a very, very fair wage for a day's work. Imagine getting a denarius in those days for working for one hour. On the other hand, if you were hired at five, by the time you got into the field, you didn't even work an hour. These guys got an incredible wage. It is absolutely mind-boggling to think about that. It doesn't happen very much. And as he continued down the line with each group that came at different times, they also got the same amount of money, a denarius. It's really very incredible. He's very generous. He had a job he wanted done. He called them to do it. They did it. And he chose to be generous. That's fair, isn't it? It should seem that way. But the all-day gang is starting to get excited. They're at the end of the line. They have developed expectations. Oh, that's a mistake we make, isn't it? We all do that, and we all know that. Makes it kind of applicable to us today a little bit. So now they're in line with their expectations. We are probably going to get something else. And then in verse 10, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. And they also received each one a denarius. Remember, they got a very fair wage for a day's work. They got a denarius. But because of their expectation, in today's words, they felt kind of ripped off. Right? Okay. Well, unfortunately, they could not contain their disappointment. So we look at verse 11. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. Well... Don't overlook the fact that all the other groups got a denarius too. The all-day gang is really only complaining about one group. And what they're overlooking is the fact that this denarius was a very fair day's wage. And here we see the meaning of kingdom equality. It's not equality of merit or pay. It's equality of presence and equality of grace. Kingdom equality deals with presence and grace, not merit and pay. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works 
which God prepared in advance for us to do. Before we go any further, let's ensure we all grasp what Paul's talking about here. Uh, notice that it's by grace you've been saved through faith. Now, irony, most people would grasp this part of this. Any clubber around here in Awana, I could call on right now and they could jump up and tell me that, and I have to look to be positive. <laughs> I get myself lost sometimes. God giving me a free gift I don't deserve. That's what grace is. It's simply a free gift I do not deserve. You can also say his goodness toward those who deserve only punishment, which we get by faith. Faith is defined for us in Hebrews 11. It is the assurance or substance of things hoped for, of a conviction of things not seen. We go to Hebrews 11.3, and we goes on to say, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Okay? They are created ex nihilo, or out of nothing. The point being, faith is believing what we can't see. We have to take it by faith. It's an important concept because our salvation is simply a gift from God. And I think too often it's hard to grasp that. It's given to undeserving sinners whom he chose to give the gift of repentance through Christ, through the gracious act of mercy that Jesus did on the cross. If you look at Romans 2.4, it tells us that God gave us the gift of repentance. Now the wording in ESV is, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because the Lord's willing and gracious, he went to the cross. He shed his blood and suffered God's wrath for the sins of all those whom he would choose. All those he saved are free and have the gift of his salvation. And that's by his grace. And because of this grace he chose to bestow upon us, we have faith in him. That really is a great blessing. What a great and glorious God we serve. As John described last week in the sermon, Christ propitiated our sins. That's a great word for everybody too. Guess what? The Iwana kids can define that for you too. <laughs> he suffered God's righteous, holy wrath for us that we might have salvation. The perfect man. And we also noted last week when, John, when Jesus said, it is finished, God's wrath was forever satisfied through Christ for everybody. Everybody he called. Reminded me then, and John quoted some of this then, Romans 3, 22b through 25, which says, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, unfortunately, we step back to the parable and we realize that the uh, ones who are now dealing with the landowner didn't really grasp his graciousness. So, where are we, and what is the all-day gang up to? 
So we will now take a look at verses 13 through 16, the vindication of kingdom equality. Look what the landowner says in verses 13 through 15 again. But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Notice that the landowner uses the term friend. It's a Greek word. It's heteros, which is usually used in a rebuking way. So in today's language, how might that landowner be talking? Something to think about. Listen here, pal. I didn't do anything wrong to you. I gave you what I said I'd give you. You agreed to work for me for a denarius or whatever amount it was. Am I not being fair to you? Is this not reasonable? Well, they're having a hard time with that. Um, the answer, of course, is yes. Look back at verse 2. He had agreed with the laborers for denarius a day. A very generous wage for a day. The real issue is competitive jealousy and envy, something that can catch many. They're still standing there, holding their coin in their hand, thinking they're going to get something else, when the foreman says, take what is yours and leave. Nothing's going to change. And in, again in verse 15, is it not lawful for me to do with what is my own, what I wish with what is my own? It's not illegal and it's not unjust. It's actually very fair. I think we'd all agree to that. And they must have because they finally walked away. They were paid in full by the one who had the right to pay them what he chose to pay them. They had all worked all day. But listen carefully to this part. While they had all worked all day, they all had the same need. And the master chose to meet the need of them all. That's a very important point to grasp there. He met the same need for all of them out of his generosity. And he said to them, is your eye envious because I'm generous? This is the imagined language. <clears throat> or are you just envious? Are you just jealous? Does my compassionate kindness to others irritate you? That's quite an accusation. Instead of grumbling, they should have been exceedingly thankful for such a generous wage, which they had also agreed to. Then the Lord reiterates his proverb at the end. The last shall be first, and the first last. And you can see how he illustrated it. Well, everybody finished the same. Everybody got the same pay. They got the same denarius, a very generous wage for their day of labor or part of a day of labor. So now you understand it, right? So we ask, what's the point? Well, it's clearly teaching us the last shall be first in a sense that those who came into the vineyard last to work and those who came first to work will all receive the same reward. As noted in verse 1, this is a parable about the kingdom of heaven. It's a parable about the spiritual dimension of heaven. It is not an allegory. There is no hidden meaning in this. 
It's simply illustrated to make a simple point. And by way of review, to make sure we've grasped it, the landowner is God, the one who owns everything. The vineyard is the kingdom of God, where he's growing everything. The laborers are the believers in the kingdom, everyone whom he has chosen. The day of work is time, which includes all of our works while we are on this earth. The evening is eternity where we'll receive our reward, our reward, as I like to say, when we step out of time, when we go into eternity. The wage, which is for all that are chosen, is eternal life. And that is the greatest wage to receive. The steward or foreman is Jesus Christ who's given the task of rewarding his own. He gives the reward and he has a right to choose. To put all this together, um, we come into the kingdom to serve him no matter how long, no matter how short, no matter how difficult or easy the circumstances, our service in the kingdom will result in the same reward, eternal life. And what is it? As I just said, eternal life, eternal glory, eternal Christ-likeness. Salvation, think about it, spending eternity with Jesus Christ. That's what this is about. That's what the disciples were supposed to grasp. Those who come last, I'm sorry, those who come first to God will receive no more than those who come last. Those who come last will receive the same thing those who come first. So believers, all believers, get it all. That is a major takeaway. There's nothing extra to get. There's certainly nothing less to get. You get the best, okay? Well, Jesus is saying that these eternal benefits of kingdom are the same for everyone who submit themselves to the rule of the king whenever and wherever he chooses. That's real important. This should tremendously encourage us because life may not be fair, but God is, and so is eternity. Every believer, no matter when they get saved or how well they run the race, will receive the same reward. And that reward is a crown called the eternal life. It's out of James 1.12. It says, blessed is one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. And that crown is eternal life. Think how wonderful it is to realize the same glorious eternal life is being given to the repentant thief as was given to the faithful gospels. That same crown goes to the willful sinner who doesn't make confession until he's on his deathbed as goes to a missionary who spends his life in the jungle struggling. The point being all believers get the same reward. And that's really, really important. It is the tremendous truth we're talking about. It's called kingdom equality. Really big. Beloved, God's not unequal. We're all going to enter into the same eternal life. Some of us early, others like myself came later, 
You, we all didn't get saved at the same time. Um, as we look at the apostles, we realize that this parable is for us too, but Jesus was telling it to them, and it's important to remember that. Go jump back a little bit into chapter 19 again, and the rich young ruler has been told what he was supposed to do. He needed to obey and repent to get that eternal life, to leave everything and follow Jesus. Well, look what Peter said in Matthew 19, 27. And Peter said to him, behold, we've left everything and followed you. And then, will there, what will there be then be for us? Well, depends on how you look at it. These greedy guys, Paul, I'm sorry, Peter, representing the apostles, is reminding Jesus that they left everything. Seems like they might be expecting a little something more. Maybe a little more than the rest of these people Jesus is evangelizing. Just a little thought there. Jesus responded to that by showing Peter that the rest of them, that no matter whether they had left everything and followed him for a long time, or they came to him at or very near to the end of their life, the reward did not change. Apparently, the disciples in some ways, a little bit like the people that came at six in the morning, we called them the all-day gang those who thought they, they needed more. They had more expectations. When he called them, they knew their reward was eternal life. Their reward was to spend eternity with Jesus. And truthfully, there isn't anything else you can get. So the idea of thinking you'll get more makes no sense, because that's what you can get. In case you forgot, even this grand building we have now, one day it'll be nothing but eternity will go on, okay? Ah, so they loved Jesus and believed in him and continued to follow him, but they were still kind of shallow and selfish. Look at uh, what happened in verses 17 through 19 of Matthew 20. Jesus is telling them for the third time that he's going to die. It reads, Jesus was going up to Jerusalem on the way. He took the 12 disciples aside and said to them, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the teachers of law. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. On the third day, he'll be raised to life. That's kind of a sobering thought. But then, in the spirit of those that came first, the mother of the sons of Zebedee come to Jesus and say, Please command that my two sons will sit on your right hand and your left hand in heaven. They still seem to be wanting a little something more. So before we pass judgment on that, though, and think about, gee, maybe that's a pretty bad request, we need to deal with our sins first, which we simply cannot do. Our sins were dealt with by Jesus Christ, who came, died on a cross, shed his blood, took the wrath of God for our sins and was raised from the dead. The one who gives the eternal reward, the one who has the right to give it out. That's what we need to remember. And with that, we can have it in eternity. So our key takeaway today, as I mentioned a little bit ago, was that the first will be last and the last will be first. <clears throat> but to understand that, we have to remember again Salvation is a free gift of divine mercy, completely devoid of human merit. Salvation is a gift 
of divine mercy. It cannot be earned. So when you struggle or you're down and out, think about the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Praise God for the great gift of salvation that we have. Remember our life on this earth is simply a moment. It's a moment before eternity. And we need to fix our eyes and our hope on Christ. Let me finish with 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. It says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for our gift of salvation. Lord, it is the greatest gift we could ever receive. And we know it comes from you. So Father, we just want to praise you for that. Instead of what could have happened to us, you have shown us grace and mercy. Help us, move in us to recognize that, to give you glory for that, to live up to the standards that you have given us in that. We praise you and we love you through your precious Son, Jesus Christ.